and are walking through the things where the promises of God and the faithfulness that he brings are so important. And so just know that we're praying those things with you as well. It's, it's interesting that that, that that the tone of that song and what it reminds us of is that it's leading us into the places that God calls us. And so it's the territory he's called us to. So it's on his faithfulness and promises as Gus just prayed. And, uh, and, and so all that is on us is to be faithful enough to take the next step. You think about, um, when it was, uh, Joshua's turn to go in the promised land and they were giving those reports back that this isn't going to work out so well because there's giants in the land and there's all these kinds of things and stuff. It was this idea of, but did God call you to it or not? And so you take that step in faith. And so it's a reminder that as we bolster ourselves in faith, what it's really meaning is that we're moving forward in obedience. And that's why we emphasize that when we talk about things like getting ready for baptism this summer and things is because we don't want to see the people of God held back because they're unwilling to take that next step of obedience. And so, so many times, even though baptism itself is an event that comes and goes quickly, like you dry off quickly, or we prepare a lot for an event that takes all of 10 seconds, What it means in the life of a believer is I got past that hurdle of not moving forward in faith and following in obedience. And it's a reminder to yourself that as the spirit moves, that you're willing to take that next step into the territory that he wants you to be in. And so baptism becomes a symbol in so many ways. Of course, it's that symbol of the salvation that you have on the inside because that's where Jesus does his work. But it's also a symbol to yourself and to those watching that you've moved, you're moving forward in obedience in him. And that's why we emphasize you, you hear us say an act of obedience a lot. But it's also is, is, um, unifying experience as people are coming into fellowship in the church. And it's something that we all celebrate with you and together and things. And so it even takes you further into a step that way. And so I just want to echo uh, Pastor Gary's words, who I think was just uh, doing an incredible job helping us to see uh, that this is an opportunity that we don't want to let pass by. And so I appreciate that, Pastor Gary. I also appreciate Pastor Tom. I might as well throw some compliments out because these guys are kind of knocking it out of the park. Pastor Tom uh, tackling that that statement of the Apostles' Creed is no small order, and I'm sure he would have done even more with twice the amount of time, and so it's a difficult thing to boil these things down, but to do it so clearly. Um, So thank you for making me feel insufficient again, Pastor Tom. But... You guys are what I, I'd say all this just because I know we hear a lot of scandal in churches and different things like that and leadership failures and stuff. And so what you see on stage with these men in particular is what you get behind the scenes. They're just as encouraging to me in the hallways as they are to you from the platform. So um, you're very blessed to have them. So. All right. Have I said enough, guys? Is that enough? All right. Keep it coming. He says. <laughs> Turn him into a monster. Um, all right. And, 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 you know, and, and again, just to reiterate the reason why we're taking the time, if you're new, every time, everything we do, I have a tendency to be like, I wonder what a visitor is thinking right now as they're walking in and pastor Tom's talking up and talking about these terms that sound like they're out of some mythology. 
you know, like some Middle Earth kind of thing or something like that, and the places that are taking place and everything. The, the reality is we are walking through this statement called the Apostles' Creed piece by piece over 12 weeks because God's people have the opportunity to grow in our understanding of doctrine, and we're doing it in kind of bite-sized pieces. Once this is done, then it'll kind of go back to other things and normal and all this kind of stuff, but it's important to take this time concentrated uh, to learn these things to strengthen our faith. And so I hope you've been doing, I've been working on it myself. I didn't grow up memorizing the Apostles' Creed, so I've been working on it pretty much every day, and it's getting there. For the most part, I think I could stumble through it in front of you. I won't. Thank you for not making me prove it. But I'm working on it, and I hope that you are as well. I think it's a great resource to have, and it gives us an opportunity to grow. All right, none of that counts towards my sermon time. I just want you to know, I'm starting my clock now, so... I was thinking about it as we're coming into Ephesians 1 and we're going to um, round out, finish out the, uh, the first chapter here today. Uh, I was thinking about those bosses or those managers or those supervisors that no doubt most of you have had throughout your working careers. Typically, it happens on sort of like the the early stages of your job, sort of the, you know, you're going to work in a convenience store, your fast food or something like that. You're working by the hour, you're getting part time or something. This phenomenon seems to happen more in those regards. But but we've all experienced that boss or that supervisor or that somebody who's been promoted perhaps just a little too quickly. You know, who's been given the full ring of keys and don't they walk around strutting it? Right? I got access to everything now. And my badge says something different than it used to. Not just my name anymore, not just associate or junior this or that. Now I'm the boss man or boss woman. And and rather than so many people just kind of maturing into that role and treating it like, well, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for me to show the other employees how I can help them, assist them, lead them, take on the responsibility, which is what it should be about. Instead, it becomes they're finally recognizing my gifts and abilities and I'm going to let the world know it. And it usually tell me if you, you, you know, you can nod your heads. This is a safe place. They're not watching that former boss or manager. You know, but it comes, it becomes a place of frustration for you because you feel like they're in it more for them and exercise their power and wield their power and authority more than getting the job done, more than helping you uh, move to the next place in your career as well. And it's a little bit off to the side for what the main thrust of our thing is here. But what I think goes on in that situation is a borrowed authority that isn't really fully theirs. Let's see if I can illustrate it this way. The guy that's probably making, or the girl's making just a couple bucks more an hour than you, that's acting like they've got mansions and yachts. If they were to act on that authority to the disgruntlement of the rest of the employees, and they said, we don't have to deal with this. Place down the street's paying just as much. I can go deal with that and see if they'll treat me a little more respectfully. And then they all up and leave. The owner of that place is going to come down on that manager, is he not? They're going to say, okay, you've abused your authority. You've overstepped. What I intended, I wanted this place to run and I wanted it to run efficiently. Yes, I gave you authority, but not to act like it was all yours. And I hope that puts this in perspective because the, the authority that we're talking about is one of the great pieces of the treasure that we all have in Christ is not ours. Not in the classic sense, not in the traditional sense that so many even well-meaning believers in Christ are clamoring for. I want this power and authority for me. I want to expend it on the things that I think are important or my priority list. It's a little bit different than that. 
If we go back in our text to verses 18 and 19 of Ephesians 1, we remember that Paul was praying that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul is layering on these synonyms of power. He's saying the same thing in three different ways so that we get the, the understanding that he is talking about something truly powerful here that comes from God. It's a miraculous, or we said it was an explosive power. It's something that only the hand of God could produce, or it's a working power, which meant it was energetic, or it was efficient to the task to get the job done. And certainly it's a great and conquering power. And Paul says that these things are so foreign to us that they're immeasurable. It isn't just mean that we haven't quite grasped the value, but we're working on it. Remember we said it was like being on one track of evaluation of our lives. We're familiar with evaluating things based on what we know and experience, what we've heard about historically. And he says this is on a completely different track. You have no comprehension, full comprehension of the value or the greatness of his power. It's immeasurable, totally foreign to our experience. And yet he's saying, this is in your treasure chest. As he's lifting that lid, all those blingy things, that is the power that is available to us. And again, for purposes of repetition, to understand that God's great power is most practically demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We might think it would be for other things. And there's certainly been incredible, powerful expressions and experiences that God has has uh, uh, displayed to mankind. But most practically even, it is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we move uh, forward into this text, I want to just take a minute and pray and ask the Lord's blessing and our comprehension of these really incredible terms this morning. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for all that you've led us in this morning, Lord, in times of worship and knowledge and, and just gaining a greater appreciation of all that you've accomplished. Lord, the purpose of our being here today is to lift up your name and praise, to offer you our lives to an even greater extent, but also to understand you more. So that as we leave this place, we've been recharged and refilled for sure, but we've also been purposed to live for your glory as we go back into the lives that are outside of this Sunday morning experience. So I pray, Lord, that the words that your people here this morning are helpful to that end. I pray, Lord, that they honor you in all that you intended for us to hear and to know today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I came across an old illustration from a, a guy who's just a phenomenal teacher. In fact, he teaches teachers. His name's Howard Hendricks and written a lot of stuff in the past and some stuff that's really stuck with me. But there was a an old illustration that he um, shared one time about a school in Atasca, Texas. And this was just prior to World War II. And this school had experienced, and, and, and then so did the town, experienced this incredible tragedy of an inferno of the school system. And they lost 263 lives of children. And, and there was no family in that vicinity that wasn't impacted or affected by that incredible loss. And as you would imagine, it would take, you know, you'd never heal fully from something like that. 
and you never fully wrap your head around the whys or the hows or anything along those lines. But the best that they could do was try to rebuild and try to kind of build better on top of. And so they went to work and, and rebuilt the school. And they, and you can understand too that their motive would be, we're going to put in a sprinkler system in this school, but we are going to just put in something. We're going to put in the sprinkler system of sprinkler systems. It's going to be, if you will, the crown jewel of anybody who's ever put together something like this. And they accomplished that task. You can imagine how important it would be for a town to feel like, look, we can't get those lives back, but we, we're making a dent. We're making an impact to do something uh, that, to help us heal just a little bit. People from all over the world came. They were coming to marvel at this. They would put some of the honor students in charge of giving tours and showing them. And then this does this and everything. And they marveled at it. And then the war comes, and then after the war, as many people were doing, getting back to work and getting expansion going and stuff, then they were able to say, okay, we're going to build onto the school. And as they were building a new wing onto the school, they looked a little bit closer at the whole system they had built that had been the marvel of everybody that came to see it, and they realized it was never connected to the system. All of the implementation of it, all the, all the piping and all that sort of stuff looked incredible, but it was never connected to a main water source, risking again that tragedy if it were to ever happen a second time. If the resurrection power is real and available to us, and it is, if we are to believe the Bible, then we are supposed to see that the practicality of this resurrection power lives in us and through us, and it is up to us or it is on us to, quote-unquote, tap into that system, to believe, to have faith in. And that's why we say that it is the most practical expression of that power that he rose Jesus from the dead. How practical is this power if we still, though, have all these real issues to deal with? If if knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and knowing that someday I'll be in heaven with him, but it doesn't pay my bills now, it doesn't fix my situation here on earth, then how practical really is it? Well, it covers the most important things. Uh, This power is seen as a saving power, and... I, I, I want to just say this clearly for any of you that have come in either recently or this has been plaguing you for a long time. Just knowing who you are, knowing what you've experienced, knowing what you've failed in, you would be perhaps very tempted to think there's no way God would save me. Like he has come to bring religion to the good folks of the community. But that isn't the case. He can and is willing to save anyone. What God does is he takes us positionally out of a place of our sin, out of a place of our condemnation, out of a place of our destination for hell for all of eternity. And he positionally changes that because of his goodness, not ours. He can and will save anyone who will believe. Back in my early days of kind of, you know, I was a much younger pup than I am now when I was getting my taste of Christian rock concerts, because I'm kind of a rock and roll head and stuff. Um, the fact that I even just said rock and roll probably negates that. <laughs> Who says that anymore? Sounds more like bebop or something now, but. And I, and I, you know, I went and saw one of my early experiences of a big major production. It was the Newsboys. But if you've been around the Christian, you know, 
music circles for the last couple of decades, you know, the newsboys dominate the charts. They are the biggest deal, you know, that Christian music has seen and everything. But at the time that I saw them, nobody knew what a newsboy was. We didn't even know they had Australian accents until they started speaking behind microphones and stuff. And when they were in concert, they were opening up for Stephen Kerr's Chapman and they had this rickety, it looked like one sheet of the thinnest plywood you could find. And it's what the drummer was playing on. And when that thing lifted off the ground like this, and the drum cymbals are like shaking on their own, they're like, uh, something tragic's going to happen, what's going on here? And then that thing started flipping upside down, and the drummer had like one of those... Um, What's it called? Uh, like a carnival kind of, you know, seatbelt strap. And we're like, this is not going to be good. This guy's going to break his neck. But that kind of Aussie adventurous, like, yeah, we're all in it for the rock show sort of thing. And to top it all off, they had silver suits on. Their, their big hit at the time was called Shine. And so they were shining brilliantly. And they had these silver suits on and everything. And I'm just like, anybody remember Steve Green? Anybody know Steve Green? That was kind of my jam for a while. I'm like, this ain't Steve Green. No tie, no suit, no, you know, anything. Steve Green's great, but it was like, this is a completely different world. And these guys were, when they came to a break in the concert and they were talking, this is a terrible setup for one verse. When they came to a break in the concert with their shiny suits and their drum platform all rickety and everything, this verse of Romans 1.16 just popped into my experience because of the way they presented it because you know the lead singer's got his microphone and he's like we're here for the the transformation of the gospel in your lives i'm like this guy just say anything you're amazing you know and he's like romans 116 says i am not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ and he says when he's when he got to the word power because that verse is you know it is the power of God into salvation. When he got to power, he had the rock stance and the lights went up and the band went like this. He was like, power. I was like, no, that's amazing. I've never forgotten Romans 1.16 since then. Has nothing to do with our message. Just You just deserve to know where my head's at most of the time. Okay. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, all right, of God for salvation. My kids are climbing under chairs right now, just hiding there. <laughs> to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember, Paul is on mission to bring people groups together, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, this is the power of God into salvation to bring everybody that wouldn't expect to have that salvation offered to them to be brought together. It's a saving power, but it's also a sanctifying power. This isn't just a new position we've been given, but it's practical. It moves us forward, what we would call progressive sanctification. In other words, he can and is willing to change anyone. Because of that power, you and I don't have to stay stuck. And you might be saying, I don't really know. I've been this way for a long time, or this is hereditary. I've got this thing handed down. This is just who we are. It's just what we do. But that negates the the power, the sanctifying power that the resurrection makes available to us. When we get to chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul's going to make this clear. He says, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying, I'm urging you to conduct yourself in a manner. That's what walk means. 
of the calling to which you've been called. That transformation will show up in very practical ways. A humble people, a gentle people, patient people, bearing with, with one another and maintaining unity. This is how he changes us along the way. And that power that's on display is just as mind-blowing as some of the greater miraculous, miraculous things that we sometimes think in terms of great power. This is part of our problem is we think if the Holy Spirit's coming in massive power, it must be in these massive demonstrable things that people would be like, wow, they've got magic. But I think in today's day and age, don't you think it's just as miraculous that people would be unified? That people would be patient with one another, that people would be growing together in love. Isn't that just as miraculous as say me being, me being able to say, I'm going to, you know, part Mesolonsky Lake. It's just as miraculous. This is the kind of thing that, practically speaking, that power shows up in. And Jesus runs into this with his disciples as he's dealing with James and John and gives them, you know, or or somebody gave them essentially the nickname, the sons of thunder, because what's going on is James and John are walking with Jesus and they're witnessing all that he's doing. They start to imagine employing this power in other ways. Over in Luke 9, begins to tell the story when he called the 12 together and then gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them legit, demonstrable, miraculous power. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then the chapter continues to sum up things like um, that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Again, a very demonstrative, miraculous feat. Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is announcing his death to his disciples, so he's giving them a bigger picture of what's going to happen. Some of them witness the transfiguration of Christ on the mountainside where Moses and Elijah appear next to him, and they're all glowing in glory. And then, of course, Jesus continues his ministry of healing. All of that is taking place. And then as we get to the end of Luke 9, verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. A lot of animosity between the, the, um, the Jews and the Samaritans. Centuries of, of tension and hostility and hatred towards one another. And so there were aspects of them and groups of them that were not receiving Jesus. But that's why Jesus met the woman at the well. And then she goes and tells fellow Samaritans. She goes and starts spreading the message. And then they start to believe. But the first reception of hostility, verse 4, when his disciples James and John saw this hostility, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and, and he rebuked them. And you can imagine they're thinking, hey, this is our opportunity to use some of this power in ways that we think are the priority. When the phrase says that Jesus turned and rebuked them, that doesn't give me enough to go on. So I was thankful when the chosen, the series, decided to deal with this little interaction in a way that I could imagine this happening a little bit more. So we're going to watch this three-minute clip and just let our imaginations go with maybe it kind of played out a little bit like this. This is just from the series, The Chosen. Let's watch. Rabbi. Well, you couldn't wait, could you? We're sorry, we just uh, wanted to clear a few things up, if that's okay. By all means. You Jewish boys are far from home. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Shalom to you, too. Here's our traditional Jewish greeting for you. 
lift a finger. That was a warning. Try it again and see what happens. Quiet, Big James. Shalom to you too. You filthy dogs! I said quiet. Let us do something. And what would that achieve? Defending your honor. They reviled and humiliated you. They deserve to have bolts of lightning rain down and incinerate them. Yes, fire from the heavens. Fire? You said we could do things like that. Say the word and it will happen. Why not? We knew we couldn't trust these people. We shouldn't have come here in the first place. They don't deserve you. Why do you think I had you work, Melexfield? What was I trying to teach you? To help? You think it was just to be more helpful? Or to be better farmers? It was to show you that what we're doing here will last for generations. What I told Fotina at the well, and what she then told so many others, it's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes. Can you not see what's happening here? These people that you hate so much are believing in me without even seeing miracles. It's the message, the truth that we're giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region you don't like were mean to you. That they're not worthy? What, you're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. It's why I'm here. I'm sorry. Sorry, Rabbi. As we gather others, I need you to help show the way. To be humble. We will. You wanted to use the power of God to bring down fire, to burn these people up? Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it that way. <laughs> you too. You're like a storm on the sea. Thunder exploding out of your chests at every turn. <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. James and John, the sons of thunder. I want to make it just a couple of quick points with the time that we have left from our text. It is important that you and I view our lives from the seat of Christ's authority, not our own. We would be like James and John and want to use whatever power or authority was afforded to us in ways that serve our purposes or ways that bow to our whims or our emotions or anything or even our best thinking. Instead, we're called to view our life from the seat of Christ's authority. Let's go back to our text in verse 19, 
Paul says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We, we dove into that verse a little bit last week to show again our key point that God's great power is most practically demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This authoritative position was given to Jesus after his resurrection. And this language in the, in these verses and the ones to follow goes back to various messianic texts in the Psalms that the Jewish people would have known and rehearsed and sung the songs of anticipating that Jesus would come with the ability to call down fire from heaven and wipe out anybody that they disagreed with. And so when they sang of the majesty of God, when they sang of the, the, um, the conquering of the, uh, the son of God who would come, that's what they had in mind. Psalm 10, 110, 1, I'm sorry. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus in that clip didn't say he didn't have that position, didn't say he didn't have that power or authority. He says, how I use it is uh, what is foreign to you. Jesus also uses this verse um, in challenging those that doubted his existence and wanting to pin the Pharisees into a kind of a, a swirl of their own thinking. He says, what do you think David meant when he said, the Lord says to my Lord? This verse is saying that God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand, a place of honor and power, of most honor and most power. Until I make your enemies your footstool, which is an incredible image, is it not? So it's a position that's given to Jesus, but what comes with that is that preeminence. In verse 21, he says that that position, Paul says that position that Christ was put in after the resurrection is far above. And this isn't just a location in the heavenlies. It means positionally above, like in an ownership sense far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And in case we didn't catch that again, the layering up not only in this age, but also in the one to come And this language. We don't have time to break it all down, but it's very spiritual in the sense of we've said that our blessings and our position is in the heavenlies. And as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, we understand that his rule, his authority is over the powers and dominions in spiritual places. Paul makes this theme very clear as we move throughout the letter to the Ephesians. He wants us to understand that the battles that we face are not against the flesh and blood that we can see, but they are in the spiritual forces in dark places. But who's the master of those? Who's the owner of those? Who 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 um, demands that all of those authorities submit to him? It's the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father. All of his enemies have been placed under his footstool, or under his feet to become his footstool. This is important to the hearer of the day because they believed at the time that angels controlled human destiny and Paul is bringing them to understand. It's like these angelic beings that you fear, don't we see that in scripture every time an angelic being shows up? 
Anytime we hear of things like there's spiritual or haunting or demonic possessions or something like that, don't we like get shaken to our core and we're like, oh, this is a world I don't know how to comprehend and I'm experiencing it for the first time. What do I do and everything? And it just, and it has this rule and dominion and authority over us. And Paul is saying all of those things, all of them answer to Jesus. None of them push him around. None of them act without his approval. We've seen it in all the times that Jesus cast out the demons from the people as they were being plagued. Just to prove over and over and over again. But he says, do you think that that's my demonstration of power, that I can send a demon away, or that I could say your sins are forgiven? Remember when he said that about the man who couldn't walk? You think it's more important that I can say, get up and walk, or that your sins would be forgiven? He did all of that to demonstrate he has the power to save us positionally and to set us on a course of improvement and growth and and surrender to him. We could say it this way. The only authority that we have over anything in this world is seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. All of our accomplishments, our talents, Even the things that frustrate us, threaten us, all of those things come under the rule and authority of the one who has ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as our creed says. It's important that we view our lives from the seat of Christ's authority as opposed to a seat of our own authority so that we're not that manager walking around with the big ring of kings thinking he owns the place. Keys, not kings. Secondly, I would say that you view your church from the seat of Christ's authority. This is where Paul takes us next. He's driving us towards unity in the church. Remember, he wants us to to submit and surrender to the same authority so that we come together in it. So in verse 22 and 23, he says that he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We have these body images going on in the language, don't we? He's been placed under his feet. It's it's a metaphoric, even though Jesus had physical feet, but it's a metaphorical thing of helping us understand that he stands in authority over. But now we're seeing that Paul's continuing that language of the body, and he's saying he's given to the church as a head. Because Paul makes it very clear, even to the Corinthian church and others, that that we are, as a church, his body on the earth. And so this language of uh, these things being under his feet, or that the church falls in line uh, under him as the head, is very helpful to us to understand that we are an organism, not an organization. What makes the church different from any other group that people give their lives to, give their money to, give their time to, any of those sorts of things, is that this is meant and called to be a living body, a living organism that moves to the authority and the direction of its head, who is Jesus Christ. That's why sometimes our activities or our... our um, our practices or whatever are unorthodox. That's why some of the things that we do, we don't always have all the answers for, all the explanations to, because it belongs to him. And if he's told us to obey, we say, that's what I'm called to do. Take the next step towards him. I don't need to have it all figured out. There are many parts to the body, but all controlled by a singular 
head. You can see where unity would start to form in a church that really sees, even as the leadership, its pastors, its elders, its other leaders and teachers understand that we don't have a human authority in this organism. That's what an organization relies on. Instead, we have a spiritual authority. We have Jesus over the church, over all things. He is the sustainer. He's the protector. He's the organizing principle, and he's the source of life. The church is always under constant threat. Regard the, uh, even with every iteration of newspaper headlines, internet links, all these kinds of things, we know that every generation the church has said, well, we're under threat. But the church has always been protected towards its mission, regardless if there's an attack, regardless if there's pain, regardless if there's those kinds of things. Jesus' church is his body, and it always moves forward. That's his role. That's his job. That's what he provides to us. And then when the church rejects that headship, it forfeits the protections that he provides. And this is what we've seen historically with a lot of denominational breakdown in churches that used to be vibrant sources and centers of the proclamation of the gospel and, and, and moving towards unity of, of people under the headship of Christ. Instead, they started getting swayed around by things like politics or, or social causes or all those kinds of things and wanting to look relevant or wanting to look, um, you know, compassionate and all those things. They forgot that they answered to a head who is Jesus Christ. And we've seen those groups become very ineffective for the gospel. It's our prayer that we don't fall into the same trap. In fact, that's what happened with the church in Ephesus. I was talking with Paul Halley about it yesterday. We were saying how Ephesians was pr- was praised by Paul for their love and their faith, only to be um, uh, 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 disciplined, if you will, in the letter uh, of Revelation when he said you've he, to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love probably like one generation removed from that reputation. It's tragic. Paul says that the church, that we've been given, it's an act of grace that God gave us a head, gave us someone to submit to, someone who loves us and we can trust. But also, he says, in, in kind of funny and strange, hard to grasp language, he says that the church is also given to the world. He says, his body, the church, in verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Theologians and commentators wrestle with this phrase. Not all of them agree. I'm not going to pretend to have a full grasp on it. But there's a couple of things here I think that we can at least boil it down to as we finish up. If I were to say to you, um, that person over there is a shepherd, but they don't own any sheep. You'd say, well, that's a shepherd wannabe, maybe. You know, or, if, you know, any, pick any of these occupations. I'm thinking shepherd because of it involving Jesus. But if we say that Jesus is a savior, but there's no one to save or rescue, then it wouldn't be a complete description of who he is. Jesus as God is not incomplete. But in terms of our understanding or his office of savior, he needed those who needed rescuing to be a complete savior. I say that carefully because it almost sounds like we're saying Jesus wasn't fully complete until we came along. That isn't what I mean. What I mean is, is that as Savior, when it says that in the fullness of him, that we filled him up or we completed the description or the office of who he is because of our need and his ability to save us. But also it's, he's one who fills all in all. And again, that's the phrase that a lot of people are wrestling with. 
But suffice it to say that we, the church, are the presence, the power, the agency, and the riches of Christ to this world. Jesus, think about this. This was his plan. This was God the Father's plan that he would, in a sense, pull away for a good couple thousand years. He told the disciples, when I go, it's better for you because I will send a comforter. So he sends the Holy Spirit to guide us to do this thing called, you know, organizing the church a little bit and reaching out and proclaiming his message and bringing God glory. And and Jesus, in a sense, kind of took a step back and said, let's see how the kids do. Not without the resource of God, because the Holy Spirit is with us. But, but this is a miraculous, freaky plan that he trusted his glory and the promotion of it to us. And we're just one church in one generation out of so many that have been tasked with the same thing. And it's incredible to think that we are what he has left to the world to sit back not disconnected. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because he could have just said, okay, now I've risen, I've paid for it and everything, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to make sure this thing's locked in and solid and everything. No, he, he left it under the, the guidance and the infusion of the Holy Spirit, but in our hands to kind of do okay with it. That's what we're doing, right? We're kind of doing okay. Historically, we've kind of done okay. It's his goodness, it's his greatness, it's his, his incredible power that is seen through us, anything. But I'm telling you, if the church, kind of doing okay, were pulled out of society, things would go south really quickly. Even the kind of being okay has been has brought so much to the world in which we live in. And that's the point that Paul is making, that he fills all in all. In the month of July, we've got a a few calendar things going on. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. When we get to the month of July and every single week, we're still going to be teaching the Apostles' Creed. Theoretically, I'm still going to be teaching a message. But we've invited a missions representative from from many different things that we support to be present with us each Sunday of the month in July and then one week into August. We're going to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive around the world, in our local college campuses, um, in other um, acts of compassion and mercy in our own city and things. And you're going to be even more reminded of the work that this church, as one church in one generation, is doing to be the fulfillment of Christ's mission to the world. And I can't wait for us to see that and to hear from those people and to be impacted by that. But we go back to the beginning. We've been given a source of power that leads us to salvation, the salvation of our souls and the transformation of our lives. The question is, are we connected to it? Have we put our faith and trust in it? Our lives are to be governed by the one who is given all authority. So the question for us is, are we trusting in that authority to settle either the chaos of our lives or even the things you might say, I don't have a lot of chaos going on. Things, In fact, things are going pretty well. Would we still give that success back to him since he rightfully owns it anyway? It all belongs under his feet. The church is a body of believers under the direction of its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we practicing submitting to that authority, trusting him for provision and protection? And of course, the church collectively, personally, individually even, the church is given to the world to represent faithfully the heart of Jesus. 
Have you taken up that call to be an active representation of that work, of that ministry, of that holiness that he has intended for the world to see? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Father, for your word again. Thank you for its um, relevance to the life that we're living here in 2022. I do pray, Lord, for an extra measure of your peace and your blessing and direction for your people this week. Regardless of the things that they're facing or the opportunities that come their way, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from temptation or distraction. But, Lord, I also pray that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. Help us, Lord, to be people of compassion this week as we learn to uh, demonstrate your love to our city and to our people to our work friends and all the other places, Lord, that you've put us in. Help us to be a faithful witness, a shining light for your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.